Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. It's Thanksgiving this week, so of course we're talking about the current level of consumption in the US and whether it can last. With trade wars getting in the way of investment and exports, the US consumer has been single-handedly keeping the US recovery on the road for much of 2019. In fact, without consumer spending, the economy would have shrunk in each of the past two quarters. And there are some concerns lately that even consumers are starting to wobble. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about some new tools we have for monitoring US consumers, especially the retail side of the economy, with our chief US economist, Carl Riccadonna. I'm also going to give you just a final taste of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing last week, a conversation about Brexit and the future of Europe with Germany's Deputy Finance Minister, Jörg Kukis. But first, our Atlanta-based Real Economy reporter, Mike Sasso, has been testing the waters in a market that turns out to be a surprisingly good barometer of the US consumer. It's not pumpkin pies or turkey, but luxury yachts. Let me get this guy on a tour real quick, if you guys don't mind. Mm-hmm. I just need one minute. On a steamy day in South Florida, I meet Tom Convoy. He sells not just yachts, but super yachts, the biggest, flashiest boats an individual can buy. On this day, he's giving private tours of Vita, a vessel that's 180 feet long. A few Mexican businessmen shuffle in. Hey, hey. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? <laughs> good to see you, man. Good everything, to see everything you. Everything well? Everything very well, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and see Nice to see you again. Yeah. How are you? How are you? Convoy's yacht is the kind of super-rich plaything that few people will ever come close to. And to preserve its pristine condition, even the wealthy guests climbing aboard were asked to leave their shoes and cocktails on the dock. The boat is built by a Dutch company called Heesen Yachts. It comes with a master stateroom and five guest staterooms, a full gymnasium and quarters for 13 crew members. Purchasing it will set you back a cool $50 million. Convoy took a break from the tours to speak about the yacht industry during the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, one of the biggest marine expos in the world. As it turns out, even people with money to burn are increasingly nervous about burning it. Chalk it up to the U.S.'s trade war with China, an ugly Brexit, and a Germany teetering on recession, he says. This is a uh, not. A, this is a uh, confidence buy. When you buy something like this, your confidence has to be good. Your confidence, and even when you have a great deal of money, you don't uh, just go this way. You 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 got real good confidence that there's there's good things coming. You know, or not good things coming, but things are going to be fairly steady going. Boat and yacht sales are seen as a good barometer of the economy because they're highly discretionary. Plus, buyers can easily put things on hold when conditions deteriorate. That's why the industry is nervous about a recent decline in boat purchases this year, from small skiffs to 300-foot vessels. And it's not just about the rich. The U.S. boating industry employs or helps sustain the jobs of more than 600,000 Americans. No one can say for sure if the sales slowdown is temporary or something more worrying, like a hint that the U.S. economy is tilting toward recession. 
But with consumer spending accounting for 70% of the U.S. economy, there's a lot riding on the answer. Chuck Cashman has a great vantage point into the U.S. boating industry. He's the chief revenue officer of Marine Max Incorporated, America's biggest chain of boat dealerships. 2019 is the choppiest year he's ever seen. I think we're in a great economy, a historically great economy. I do understand we're closer to the end of a good cycle than we are in the beginning, right? It's, uh, it, it won't go on forever. However, it's the broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> if everybody is just going to say we're heading for a downturn, yeah, we are, but when, right? I don't think this weekend. So, uh, you know, that's how I'll attack this weekend. Overall boat sales in 2019 should hit their second highest level in the past dozen years, according to industry data, and there's no sign of any slowdown in Florida in early November. Organizers of the boat show created an exclusive superyacht village this year, where the wealthy arrived by water taxi to tour ships as long as 300 feet. Local hotels were sold out all around the show's vast marina complex and parking spaces a half mile away cost $40. Lindsay Piegza is an economist at Stiefel Financial. She said consumers are behaving oddly this year. Given the strong economy, she would have expected people to keep spending more each month. Instead, they're buying some items only to cut back on others. The consumer is still out there, maybe buying that big screen TV one month, but in doing so, he or she is foregoing uh, that other purchase, be that a new winter coat or going out to eat with the family. So we're seeing this dramatic shift month to month, and that doesn't necessarily insinuate a very strong consumer going forward. Bob Dennison is a luxury yacht broker from Fort Lauderdale. He remains somewhat upbeat. Most people would tell you that they are sort of cautiously optimistic. Orders are being made on new boats, used boats are buying, weather's nice but we're a somewhat smart bunch and we know that, you know, there are economic cycles that come in and out and uh, this market specifically is is usually hit harder than most when there is an economic downturn because the things that we sell are uh, things that are truly um, things you buy for no, you know, utilitarian reason. You own a yacht, unless you're a fisherman or you're a crab, you know, the, the only reason that you're buying these yacht, these white yachts at the boat show is just for fun. But maybe people aren't going to be having as much fun anymore. The U.S. will hold its presidential election next year, and two of the leading candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are calling for a new tax on the wealthiest Americans. The boating industry fears that could scare yacht buyers, persuade them to hold off on purchasing. A few years ago, Dennison studied boat buying trends. He found that sales fall off in the months before a presidential election, although they pick up again after it's over. That could make boat sales a bit cloudier as an economic barometer these days, which means we may have to look at other items to gauge whether there's going to be a recession. Economists also watch sales of movie tickets big screen TVs, and even cosmetic surgeries to see if the economy is turning. 
There are also market indicators with reliable reputations, like the difference between yields on different maturities of treasury bonds. It's fair to say that the boating industry is increasingly anxious, however. Tom Conboy, the super yacht salesman we heard from at the beginning, doesn't like the look of the election season so far. From here, I think if this political thing just keeps going in this, you know, in this muddy trench that it's in, I, it's not going to help us. For Bloomberg News, I'm Michael Sasso. So that's the view of consumers from the ground, or maybe in this case, the marina. Uh, I'm now joined by Carl Riccadonna, our US chief economist. Carl, thanks for being here. I know you have uh, given us some interesting new research in the last week or so, looking at this crucial question of the strength of the US consumer going into the holiday season. Tell us a bit about what you found. Well, there's a broader question over uh, the, uh, the the ability for consumers to really continue propping up economic growth. But w- what we did here uh, was look a little bit more narrowly at the holiday shopping season uh, and uh, identify the categories that are really relevant to that uh, end of season surge uh, in sales. And of, of, of course, that starts with the uh, Black Friday uh, holiday in the U.S. And it's uh, called Black Friday because that's uh, uh, historically the day of the year where retailers uh, actually go uh, from being in the red to being in the black, uh, given that uh, pickup in activity. And there have been, I'm actually, I'm going to be in New York on, on Black Friday, and I'm going to do everything I can to avoid any large shops. But um, uh, there has been some worry in the last, even just in the last few weeks, about whether consumers are starting to falter, whether we should worry about them carrying the U.S. economy on their shoulders uh, into 2020. What do you think about that? If consumers are uh, are buckling, we've got a real problem on our hands. Uh, if we look at GDP growth, uh, excluding consumers, uh, in fact, the economy has been in contraction for the last uh, two quarters uh, and would continue to contract into year end. So kind of the ex-consumer uh, economy really, uh, we could say, is in a recession. Now, consumers are 70 percent of the picture, so it uh, kind of doesn't make sense uh, to take consumers out of that uh, out of that equation, but that gives you a context of what's really propping up growth at the moment. So uh, we really have to keep a very watchful eye on consumers, not just those retailers that are looking to go into the black, uh, but also the broader uh, trajectory of the economy. And when we look at that trend, uh, there's been reason for concern, but I'll say not panic, uh, in some of the latest data. So, uh, for example, if we look at uh, all of these inputs that uh, we run uh, into this holiday shopping model, things like uh, demand for motor vehicles or uh, overall spending momentum in the economy, consumer attitudes, uh, the household savings rate, uh, and most importantly, the household income trend, the wage and salary trend, uh, all of those have been cooling uh, over the last uh, couple of months, if not quarters, uh, and tell us that we are on a weaker trajectory. I know people listening, when we have these conversations, people always say, what about internet shopping? Are these these old data, the, the traditional data, surely it's not capturing how much of us are now buying online? Do you do you feel confident that we're capturing that side of the economy now? There have been problems uh, historically that uh, internet sales were not being captured uh, as fully in the uh, data series. Uh, but uh, what we're using for this uh, particular study is the uh, retail sales data from the Census Bureau. Uh, and that does uh, capture uh, internet sales. 
sales. And, and we can see that category growing at a very robust pace, about 15 uh, percent uh, in year on year terms. So, uh, in fact, it is slowing. I can remember 10 years ago looking at this data and it was growing at about a 25 percent pace. But uh, that, that's a, a, a microeconomic story within the broader data set. So we are capturing uh, Internet uh, retail uh, in this uh, data. Uh, what we don't capture here is the service side of the economy. Now, when we talk about consumer spending more broadly, absolutely services are included. But as we look at retail sales data here, and the, the big story is you know, millennials want to buy experiences and not, uh, not items that they have to store in their uh, very tiny apartments. Uh, and so those experiential uh, purchases, if you're g- gifting someone a, a vacation or a, a massage or, or, or some kind of service uh, at, uh, at the holiday season, uh, that's not going to show up in these metrics. Yeah, and as we know, a lot of them, uh, they they do not get used, which is a nice little earner for the people who give out uh, the vouchers. You know, we've just been hearing about luxury yacht industry and how that's being affected by the mood uh, among consumers. It makes you think a little bit about uh, one of the big political issues that we're going to hear a lot, talked about a lot as we go into the US presidential campaign, the way that money has gone into the pockets of the very, very wealthy over the course of uh, the last um, 10 or 15 years, um, particularly. Do you see, I mean, we, we would tend to think that if uh, wage growth, if we're seeing wage growth at the uh, bottom end of the uh, wage spectrum, that's going to be better for overall consumption than just having a lot of money going into the bank accounts of the super rich because they're not going to spend it all. Is that is that something you see? Because I know the pattern of wage growth has been, you know, has been a bit better for the lower wage uh, end of the spectrum in the last few years. Sure. As you uh, look at the uh, composition of spending by uh, income uh, quartile, for instance, uh, we definitely are seeing that uh, this is uh, now looking like a more mature economic cycle uh, to the extent that uh, Initially, in, in economic cycles, you don't tend to have uh, uh, very weak economic conditions for the upper income uh, demographics. The lawyers and doctors tend to not be unemployed uh, when the economy uh, is in recession. Uh, and then later on in the cycle, we see uh, the unemployment rate for those with, uh, let's say, less education that tend to be in lower income demographics. Uh, that uh, tends to improve. And that's really what we're seeing in the data uh, lately. Uh, And to answer your question, uh, those uh, demographic groups tend to have a much lower savings rate, which means that every dollar earned tends to get transferred into consumption. uh, And so there is a stronger macroeconomic uh, uh, consequence uh, from improvement in in that end of the income spectrum compared to the top, which tends to have a very high savings rate. uh, And so those dollars earned then get reinvested into uh, financial assets. Sets, uh, typically. And that is going to be one of the things that I'm sure will get talked about uh, in the presidential election. It's certainly something that the likes of the International Monetary Fund has pointed to in saying that income inequality, uh, having the gains from growth not evenly spread can actually hurt growth itself. Plenty of stuff to talk about, plenty of stuff that we want you, Carl, to be watching very closely going into uh, 2020. But thanks very much and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. So I did promise you a final taste of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum last week in Beijing. And here we have it. It's part of a debate about Brexit and the future of Europe. Here's my conversation with Jörg Kukis, Germany's deputy finance minister. Jörg Kukis, when people 
Often in the UK, in this debate, people have pointed to Germany as the country that would push hard for uh, a good deal for Britain because German companies would be so affected. Um, it feels a bit like Germany and indeed other parts of Europe have just, are now just putting their hands up saying, let's just get this done we're not, we just want to get past Brexit now, whatever it takes. Is that, is that the German, I want to get onto the impact, the broader impact yeah. on Europe, but what about the German stance now on Brexit? Well, okay, so first of all, I think your half sentence, because, is not complete. Um, when you say, because the German companies are so affected, that's true, the German companies are affected, but I think the much bigger reason why Germany has tried so hard to, um, to make the best of of Brexit is because of the very deep-rooted friendship between our countries and the very close cooperation that we've had over decades and uh, the work that we've done together in the, um, in the European Union. Um, so, so we're losing a very dear friend and, uh, and partner. So that's, that's really the biggest um, reason why we try to be as constructive as we can in this. And I would say that even the second round of negotiation, the German government has taken a very constructive stance in terms of trying to build bridges and trying to facilitate things the best we can. Um, and the other aspect, I think, that's also very important for the, um, for the question of, um, I mean, we don't have a choice but to accept, accept the Brexit decision, but we do have a choice to try to make the response of the European Union in terms of the transitional agreements um, in the financial markets, um, in all of the rules and regulations that we have as, um, as reasonable as possible, um, you know, like equivalence decisions with respect to um, the financial markets, I think are extremely strategically important. And uh, the German government has been very, um, very active in um, making sure and, um, and, um, and taking a position in the European Union um, of a constructive stance within the Brexit context. And if we think about the, the longer-term impact for Europe, um, there had been an argument that said, once you lose Britain, uh, it's all very sad, but you're also liberated to have some of the closer integration that Britain had resisted from inside the European Union. Um, do you think there is that potential that you would, we would think of this as, a, as actually giving a new lease on life to a, to a closer integration? Or will we actually say, no, this was when a hole got blown out of the EU and it was the beginning of a further disintegration? So first of all, I don't quite agree with the assessment um, because you know, if the assessment were true that it was Britain that held back the integration of the European Union, then the institutions of the Eurozone um, should have been much stronger and made much more progress uh, because United Kingdom never played a role in that because it's not in, right? But if you look at the lack of progress in the banking union, which is only the, um, the EU-19, i.e. The, the Eurozone countries, it's not like we've made a huge amount more progress in that than in the other agenda items. So I don't think it's really an issue that, uh, that Britain held us back. Um, what I do think what, is, what people are realizing and why there has now been a new impetus to both the banking union and the capital markets union is of course that everyone now realizes that once the direct access and integration with London um, may change, we hope it doesn't change radically, but it, it will change, of course, in some aspects, there has to be a response from the European Union. And the, in, if we want to um, assure the 
funding and financing of our real economy to the extent that we've had so far, um, we have to do our homework on banking union and capital markets union. I mean, any large global corporate in Germany that has sought financing for any large transaction at the global scale has been doing it through London in the last 20 years, right? 30 years. And that is now going to be more difficult. So if Europe doesn't respond and strengthen its banking union, capital markets union, it will be to the detriment of Europe. So that's, that, that may, may be the, 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 the sort of healthy um, thing that we have to get our act together. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics and a very happy Thanksgiving to my fellow Americans. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics through the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Michael Sasso. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Landman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Be sure to read Mike's original article on this topic, which was edited by Anita Sharp and Sarah McGregor. Special thanks, finally, to Karl Rickardonner, German Deputy Finance Minister Jörg Kukis, and the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.